Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you. One of the great gifts that came to our family through going to the traditional Latin Mass was rediscovering confession. Not so much for me, but for many of my kids, the regular practice of making a good confession. Confession is a a much misunderstood sacrament. Well, I begin a series today on Sound Insight to walk you through the way in which confession is actually a sacrament of healing, and it can heal your life. So get ready, buckle up. We're going to dive into this great healing sacrament. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Want to let you know what we're going to be doing in the course of these sessions. Uh, I'm going to be exploring um, the book that I wrote on confession called Confession Five Sentences That Will Heal Your Life. Today I'm going to uh, have a chance to, to go over the meaning that confession is a sacrament and what does that mean? How do we explore some of that? But also, how do we connect the concept of confession to our daily lives? So, the five sentences that will heal your life are you can repeat after me I did it, I did it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll make up for it. And I'll never do it again. So these are great uh, sentences that are associated with the sacrament, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation or confession. I'm proposing that they also are sentences that connect to our own life of faith as disciples. Well, I always want to begin as a disciple, as a follower of the Lord Jesus in prayer. And so we begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to begin with the reading of Scripture and then add a prayer. This is from John chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, even though the disciples had locked the doors of the place where they were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood before them. Peace be with you, he said. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. At the sight of the Lord, the disciples rejoiced. Peace be with you, he said again. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive men's sins, they are forgiven them. If you hold them bound, they are held bound. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' holy name, and we do thank you and praise you for this opportunity to be together. I ask and I plead and I beg that your spirit would be stirred within us that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our midst. Jesus, be the Redeemer. We gather in your name. And so we ask that you would set free our minds and hearts and that you would set free this time, that we would each receive the blessing and the grace that you have in store for us. We say yes in advance to what you'll be doing in this time. Lord, may it be truly something that glorifies you. And so we lay our lives down before you and ask that you would receive this humble offering and that you would bless it. We do turn to our Mother Mary. We ask for her intercession, along with our patron saints and guardian angels, as together we pray. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, why am I doing this series on confession? Five sentences that will heal your life. Uh, the mission of the organization I run, mycatholicfaith.org, the mission of this organization is to help Catholics understand, appreciate, and live their faith more fully. Now, those words are chosen intentionally. When I say understand, I'm talking about the truth of our faith. So many Catholics don't truly grasp the incredible riches of what we believe. So part of my goal in this session is to help you, no matter how you're participating, help you to understand more fully the great riches that our, teaches, that our church teaches on confession. If that's what understanding is, what's appreciation? Appreciation has to do with beauty. Not only is what the church teaching true, it's also beautiful. It draws us. We should be drawn to embrace it and embrace its beauty for our own lives. In fact, God's glory, glory, that term glory, is a theological way of saying divine beauty. The teaching of our church has a beauty that is not just of this world, but it's heavenly beauty coming near to us. But again, how many Catholics really appreciate that? So part of my goal is to appreciate the beauty, the divine beauty, the glory of confession. Understand, appreciate, and what? Live. Not only is our church teaching true and beautiful, it's also good. It's good for us. It's meant to come to birth in our lives. Beliefs don't just stay in the head. Beliefs are to take root in our hearts and shine forth in our lives. And so part of the goal that I have is to teach about confession in a way that helps it not only understand its, its, uh, its truth, appreciate its beauty, but allow it to come to birth in how we live our lives. I think that when Catholics think about saying, I'm Catholic, they, they typically identify that with going to Mass. So that's a part of their way of looking at themselves. Too many Catholics today don't consider confession to be a regular, integral part of their own practice of the faith. Somehow, we as Catholics can, can go an extended period of time, fill in the blank. Is that six months, a year? Is that a decade? I've been giving this talk now a few times, and, and people come up to me and they'll say, I haven't been to confession in 40 years. And when I hear that, it just confirms in my mind uh, one of the things that I began this book with, and that is when it comes to confession, Catholics have been swindled. When you're swindled, someone approaches you, and what are they going to do? They're going to convince you that you who have something good should, should give it to me. And in fact, I'm going to give you something in exchange. And in a, in a swindle, I'm going to convince you to willingly, freely give up something that's very valuable in exchange for what? Something that is worthless or maybe even harmful. The best swindle is one where the swindler convinces a person to freely give away a precious pearl and receive in return a piece of trash, something worthless and maybe even harmful. And I want to propose to you that when we give up the practice of confession willingly, freely, 
when we freely choose to run from confession rather than to it, we are being swindled, or we have been swindled. Swindled out of a precious pearl, a true treasure, a treasure where Christ wants to come close to us and do something incredibly special that he does, he has chosen to do in a distinct way in that sacrament and in no other way, in, in no other place in the way he intends to do it in that sacrament. But again and again, I find that there are people who just willingly look the other way when you're going by the confessional. Now, why? Well, we're ashamed, right? I don't want to go to confession. Why? I have to admit to doing something that I'm ashamed of. Who wants to do that? You know, please, whoever wants, who enjoys doing that? Please come up here and enjoy to do what you're doing. You know, we don't like to admit what we're ashamed of. In fact, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They hid. They hid. They didn't want to come out into the open when they betrayed the Lord, when they disobeyed his command. Go after that forbidden fruit, and what do they want to do? They want to hide because they were ashamed. And so can we understand why people would want to avoid confession? Yeah, I get it. I get it. Now, uh, why do I call it confession? I do this because of a very traditional idea that helps connect what happens in that sacrament to our lives. What am I saying? There's this traditional idea that the life of faith that we live as disciples can be understood under the title or under the category of confession. The life you live as a disciple is a confession of faith. In other words, if you want to know what I believe, if you want to know what I confess as true, just follow me around. And the life I live is a confession of faith. And so I do this very intentionally, not because I'm trying to recover ancient structures of confessions, but rather I want to help Catholics connect what happens in that reconciliation room, in that confessional, wherever it happens, wherever that sacrament occurs, I want to help Catholics connect what happens in there to their life of faith. If what we're doing each and every day can be seen in relationship to that sacrament, then we're not going to be as fearful of it. We're not going to be something, we're not going to be avoiding it so much. It's something that we'll see our lives of faith as disciples flow out of the confessional or reconciliation room and leads back to the confessional and the reconciliation room. And by that, I mean much more than just, well, I say I'm sorry for my sins in my personal prayer and I say I'm sorry for my sins in confession. No, no, it's much richer than that. It goes back to a very traditional idea in our life of faith. St. Augustine is probably the one who most famously develops this idea in his book. Guess what the book is called? The Confessions, right? The Confessions of St. Augustine. Now, have you ever read it? Any of you have read this book? This is not an easy book. Okay, first of all, this is not an easy book to read, not because he lays out salacious details about all the horrible things he did in his life. Is it a confession of his sins? Yeah, he does do that. He does talk about his journey to God. But even more, it's a confession of God's glory. A confession of faith, that concept that our lives confess our faith in God, 
is, in the words of St. Augustine, a simultaneous display of both God's glory and our misery. Simultaneously, our lives are to show God's majesty and our misery without God. They are simultaneously a display of God's power and of our poverty. What are you talking about, Tom? How does that actually show up? Isaiah 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, what happens? Isaiah goes into the temple, the prophet, and there he's drawn into the presence of God in this holy place. Drawn into, in fact, heavenly worship around the throne of God, the angels worship. And you remember the, the phrase that the angels say, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. And what happens to Isaiah as he confesses this vision of God's glory? He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Well, what's happening in that chapter? Is he confessing God's glory or his misery? The answer is yes. It's both simultaneously. Think St. Peter in Luke chapter 4. What happens in Luke 4? Jesus is on the seashore. Crowds are, are there. What does he do? He gets into Peter's boat, preaches, and then he says, go out into the deep. Remember the story? What happens? Nets go over the side. A big haul of fish come in. Not just a big haul. The biggest haul that is so big, one boat can't even take in all the fish. In this incredible display of God's glory, this overwhelming display of God's intervention into Peter's situation, what does Peter do? He falls down on his knees and he says, Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. It's in the light of God's glory that Peter sees his own sinfulness. These things should stay together in our lives. Last example, Revelation chapter 1. St. John, the author of the book of Revelation, gets drawn up into the presence of the Lord on the Lord's day. And there he describes the glory of the risen Lord Jesus in striking language, so striking that it's as if words fail to convey the one that he is seeing. I don't know if you've ever really paid attention to what uh, uh, Revelation chapter 1, but listen to what uh, John says. Caught up in ecstasy, I heard behind me a piercing voice. He turned to see whose voice it was that spoke. He said, when I did so, I saw one like a son of man wearing an ankle-length robe with a sash of gold about his breast, dressed like a priest. And then listen, this is the risen Jesus. Okay, now when you think of Jesus risen and glorified in heaven, you think of him as the brown hair and the beard, right? Well, look at, look at John's encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. The hair of his head was as white as snow white wool, and his eyes blazed like fire. His feet gleamed like polished brass refined in a furnace, and his voice sounded like the roar of rushing waters. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth, and look at this, and his face shone like the sun at its brightest. That's quite an encounter. What happens to John? 
when I caught sight of him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. Encounter the glory of God and what shows up? Our own misery, poverty, our own uh, sinfulness. In the light of his infinite holiness, our own sinfulness shows up. What's the danger? The danger is being aware of your sinfulness apart from God's glory. That's the danger. Then we're just left with shame that makes us hide. But that's not what God intends for us. He intends for us to know his glory. He intends for us to have an encounter with him that is glorious, that is personal, that is something that causes us to realize and see in a new way what our lives are like in the light of his glory. That's what God intends for us. Do we realize this? Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. You see, in confession, um, certain things are asked of us. If you think about um, confession in comparison to a lot of the other sacraments, we're very active. The priest basically, you know, is watching us and then grants absolution. It does more than that, of course. But when you think about the activity of the priest versus the, 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 the individual, we're doing a lot more. Think of baptism. You show up, you're baptized, right? A lot went into preparation, but you're just being, something's happening to you. Confession, you're doing quite a bit. Well, what are the acts that we, we who are called the penitents, are asked of us when we go to confession? These acts are called, you can repeat them after me, confession, contrition, petition, satisfaction, and resolution. Now, you think of those actions, you know, like confession, contrition, petition, satisfaction, resolution. What does that mean? Well, this is what those mean. I'm going to translate those. Confession is, guess what? I did it. Contrition is, I'm sorry. Petition is, forgive me. Satisfaction is, I will make up for it. And resolution is, I will never do it again. If we can see what happens there as happening out here, if we can see those acts of confessing, of being contrite, of petitioning for forgiveness, of engaging in the acts of satisfaction, that's penance, and in resolving never to sin again, if we can see how those are part of what we do every day, then we're going to see that we're living a confessional life. Our whole lives are an overflow of the very acts that are condensed in their expression in that sacrament. So the more fully that we see confession connecting to our lives, the easier it's going to be to say, Why, what, what am I so afraid of? I'm doing that every day. It's how I live every day, so I'm naturally going to flow right into the confessional. Now, this also gets very literal. Guess what? My kids aren't always angels. I, I, I know that's a shock, but my kids actually get into fights. They don't always share. Sometimes one is mean to another, and they have to make up. They have to reconcile. Guess what we've taught our kids to do when they 
get into a fight. We've taught them five sentences. They know. And this is something that my family, we try to live out. We're teaching our kids. So for instance, last week we were celebrating my wife Carrie's birthday. And um, after dinner, but before the cake, the three of my girls started picking on a fourth one. Got ganged up on. They were teasing her, right? Well, what? she didn't like this. She tried to fight back. She was overwhelmed by the other three. She cries, flees the room. So I go into the room because I heard it all. And I said, you three are not getting cake. Whoa, they didn't like that at all. So now what do they want to do? They want to reconcile. So what do they say? We're sorry, we're sorry. Don't talk to me. You go face that girl. You go face your sister. And they know exactly what to do. So they go in there. I did it. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Right? And then they come out and they say, what's our penance? In our home, we don't have, we don't have consequences. We have penances. And so they had to do a penance, right? You guys are laughing, but this is true. And so for two of them did her chore. Now, a lot of kids have chores. So two of them took on her chore. They took on the burden of her chore to make up for the damage they had caused in the relationship. And uh, the other one, the other one got one of her favorite stuffed animals and gave it as a gift. She was giving up something that she held as precious as a gift to her sister to make up for that damage, right? And there's a resolution never to do it again, which they then fail on miserably within a day, right? Or within an hour even. Uh, but the resolution is there. I won't do that again. I won't do that again. And so this is something that is a very useful tool. I'm sharing this with you, those of you that you want to talk and think about how do I reconcile with a loved one? How do I reconcile with a spouse? How do I teach my kids how to reconcile? Hold on to these five sentences. It has to do with a simple acknowledgement that I did it, an expression of contrition, I am sorry, a petition, please forgive me, a thought about satisfaction or penance. What can I do to make up for it? And then lastly, please know this, I am resolved never to do it again. That outline of what happens in confession can be an incredibly powerful means of bringing into your family these sentences that will heal your relationships. Did you hear the word I just said? Heal your relationship. I'm going to come around to that in just a moment. Um, I want to talk about this idea of Confession as a sacrament. Confession as a sacrament. And um, uh, I want to talk about, uh, first of all, what is a sacrament? Now, if you grew up Catholic, you learned, if you could condense the meaning of a sacrament down to two words. What's a, what's a sacrament? An effective sign. It's a sign that communicates the grace that it signifies. Huh? You following me? Or if you learned a more expansive definition, it is a ritual that is established by Christ and continued in the church by which God's sanctifying grace is communicated to the soul uh, in these seven distinct rituals, right? So that's a, a more developed concept. Now, an effective sign. What do I mean? What do I mean when I say that the sacrament is an effective sign? Think baptism, right? What's baptism? Baptism is... You, uh, you either immerse someone in water, you pour water, you sprinkle water on them, and you speak, uh, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so that's baptism. What does baptism do? What does it bring about? Well, if we want to see the effect, it's an effective sign, what's the effect that this sign brings about? Well, take a look at the sign. 
and you'll see what it symbolizes, right? So what, what do we see? Well, immersion in water. Well, what does water do? It cleanses. So one of the effects of baptism is that it does what? Cleanses us of sin. Original sin, personal sin. Cleanses us of all sins. Great. Well, how does it cleanse us of sin? It cleanses us of sin by, you know what the word baptism means? It means to plunge or to immerse. It plunges and immerses us into, well, into what? Into that action by which our sins are forgiven. What's that action by which our sins are forgiven? Jesus Christ's death on the cross. So we are plunged into the very mystery of Christ's passion and death and share in his resurrection. Oh, wait a minute. There's another effect of baptism. What else happens to us when we're baptized? We go from being creatures of God to children of God. We are recreated. We are new creations, right? Just nod and agree. Yes, this is what happens when we're baptized. Well, how is that symbolized? Well, normally you go down into the water, stripped of clothing, and then when you come out, you're clothed in a white garment. So now there's, there's a way in which being plunged in this water is being plunged in another symbolic meaning of water. Anybody know what else water symbolized besides something that cleans? It symbolized chaos. It symbolized hidden powers of death. Like, can you see what's under the water? Can you see what's hidden there, ready to leap out and get you? You can't. So the death, uh, water was a symbol of chaos, uncontrollable powers of death. And so who was plunged into death? Jesus. And he came up victorious over death and the resurrection. And so we go down into the water to say what? We too are plunged into the death of all that holds us from God and we rise to new life with Christ. So now we are joining our lives to the very life of Christ. And the new life that comes to us is the life of God's own children. All of that is a way of saying that's the meaning of the sacrament. Well, are you all ready to leap in for joy and say, well, this is just tremendous. My life has changed. There's great riches there for us to ponder. But I want to propose to you that if we only get to the level of understanding, then in fact, we're going to be missing. We're going to be missing something very important about the nature of the sacraments. And that is that the sacraments are a place of encounter. The sacraments are effective signs. Absolutely, the traditional definition of a sacrament holds, uh, it, 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 it is uh, still valid today. But listen to what Pope Benedict XVI said. He said this um, uh, before becoming Pope. He said, If no contact with the living God of all men takes place in the sacraments, then they are empty rituals which tell us nothing nor give us anything. Let me say that one more time. It's a very important quote. If no contact with the living God of all men takes place in the sacraments, then they are empty rituals that tell us nothing nor give us anything. If we just look at the sacraments as grace dispensers, it lacks that personal quality. It lacks that 
personal encounter quality. Listen to what the Catechism says. Christ is at work in each of the sacraments. He personally addresses every sinner. My son, your sins are forgiven. He is the physician tending each one of the sick who need him to cure them. He raises them up and reintegrates them into fraternal communion. That's incredibly personal. In fact, what I want to propose is, and this is what I do in this book as well as in the Mass book, is I try to draw out the personal presence of Jesus Christ and propose that the sacraments are places of promised encounter with Jesus Christ. You didn't hear that. They're places of promised encounter. Now, where is God able to be encountered? Well, the answer is everywhere. If we only have the eyes to see, God's present everywhere. In fact, in our tradition, it gets laid out this way if you're interested. Uh, God, is at, God is present and able to be co uh, uh, connected to in the world, in the world that is beyond us, right? And so you can look at the world of creation as a great work of art, and through the work of art, guess who you can come into contact with? The artist. And that's God who is beyond the world, the God who is transcendent beyond the world. That's traditionally associated with the Father. And so you can get a sense of God the Father at work through his power and through his providential goodness beyond the world and visible in the world he created. God's also at work in the flow of time, in the flow of history. God is with us. God comes close to us and he walks with us. Who's that? That's Jesus. So not only is God at work in all the things he has created and is beyond them, he's also at work in each moment. In fact, the church teaches that he comes close to us in every moment. If you could only break it open, any moment, every moment in time, has a possibility of being a place of encountering Jesus Christ. Now, beyond us, with us, but guess what? Also within us, in the deepest place of our hearts. Well, which person of God is that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in the depths of our hearts, in fact, is more deeply within us than our own deepest center. Now, what am I saying? You're surrounded. <laughs> There's nowhere you can go to get outside of God's presence. There's nothing that is ever happening in the flow of time where Christ isn't ready to meet you. And there's nowhere you can even go within you to hide. He's beyond you as a father. He's with you as the son, and he's within you as the spirit. But the problem is what? We don't see. We're not aware. We're not connecting to the presence of God beyond us, with us, and within us. I want to propose to you a very powerful and, I think, critical way that we will learn to recognize God's presence beyond us, with us, and within us is by going to those places where he's promised to meet us in a personal way. A personal way, think a face. There's a face turned towards you. The fact that word presence in Latin, the word presence in Latin means to turn towards and to face. To say that Jesus Christ is present at mass in, in those different ways I mentioned in the community, in the word, in the priest, and in the Eucharist, is to say that he's turned towards you and that he sees you. To say that Christ is present in the sacraments means that he's turned towards you in a personal way 
He sees you and he wants to draw near you because there is something he wants to do to your life. Did you just hear that? In other words, there is an effect that he wants to have on your life that's distinct in the sacraments. So if you want to say, Jesus, where can I meet you? Well, I can meet you everywhere, but right now my life is hard. And when life gets hard, and when we're caught up in, in behaviors that maybe aren't honoring God, you know what? God's presence beyond the world and at work in the world and within us gets obscured. It becomes very difficult to see. And so if we can go to those places where we know that he meets us, he's promised to always be there for sure, that can give us a handhold. That can give us something to hold on to. Recently, our church in the last 40 years has, um, has recovered a traditional way of talking about the sacraments as being of three types. You've probably heard this before. There are sacraments of initiation, sacraments of vocation, and sacraments of healing. What are the three sacraments of initiation? Sacrament of? Baptism, confirmation, Holy Eucharist. They initiate us. They integrate us. They incorporate us. They make us members of the church. And do you know what? The Lord has an effect that he wants to bring to your life through those sacraments. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. There is an effect that Christ wants to bring to your life through those sacraments. You know what it is? I can make it very simple for you. He wants to make you a saint. He wants to make you holy. They're for you. They are gifts given to you so that you can achieve what the church calls the perfection of charity. You will come alive fully where you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You'll be a saint. They're for you. Enjoy them. Two other sacraments are sacraments of vocation. The catechism calls them sacraments at the service of communion. Hold on to that word service. Sacraments of vocation are two. What are those two sacraments? Holy matrimony and holy orders, right? Those are sacraments that have at their essence not you, but they have at their essence you being in service. Well, in service to whom? Well, since there are no priests in the room, let's focus on married people. Any married people here? Okay, anybody want to get married here? All right, don't ignore, don't ignore the... Yeah. If you want to get married, are you married? Are you thinking about it? It's not about you. It's about you pouring your life out. Pouring your life out as a married man. I pour my life out for my wife and my kids. So why? So that they're provided for? That, that's important. But that's not the number one reason. God's going to judge me on my sacrament. He's going to judge me according to his standard. And his sta- I can't say, can I bring my own standard? Hey, Lord, here's what I wanted my marriage to be about. Good vacations. That's my goal. And the Lord will look at me and say, wasn't mine. What's God's goal for my marriage? That as a result of being married to me, my wife and children become saints. Sacraments of initiation are to make me a saint. Sacrament of vocation is so that I pour my life out so that they become a saint. Ask Carrie. Being married to me, Oh, yeah, she's becoming a saint. (laughs) Embrace that cross, honey. (laughs) Now, hey, you shouldn't have laughed so hard there. Now, um, uh, those are the sacraments of initiation. Those are the sacraments of vocation. What are the last two sacraments? Healing. Sacraments of healing. What are the two sacraments of healing? Baptism 
anointing of the sick, and confession. You didn't hear it. You just didn't hear it. Confession has at its essence, what? Healing. Sacraments has at its essence the effect that Christ intends to bring to our lives. He wants to draw close to us and touch our lives. He is turned towards us in that sacrament to bring one thing to our lives. Healing. And so we as Catholics run from it. What? What? Are you kidding me? We just don't understand it. We don't appreciate it. And so you know what happens? We flee from it and we're swindled. We are robbed of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ that is entirely established so that he would heal us, so that he would set us free, so that he would make us come alive. That's his goal for us in confession. We just don't see it that way. We don't. And what do we lose? Well, let's take a look at the other healing sacrament, anointing of the sick, right? Anointing of the sick is given to those who are physically sick. When you're physically sick, how do you feel? Rotten. What's the impact of feeling rotten? Are you at your best? No. Energy? No. What about your horizon, the horizon for your life? Narrowed down restricted. And in fact, if your sickness is that bad, your whole life becomes somehow tending to the limitations that your sickness imposes upon you. So I injured my back seven or eight years ago playing racquetball. Every couple times a year now, it just goes out. It's not fun. It's horrible. Anybody who has back pain, I pity you. It's a horrible thing to have. And, um, and when I have my back pain, when, it, when my back is out, you know what happens? Hey, Tom, how are you doing today? You know what my answer is? My back is doing okay or not. Everything is referenced now based on the sickness. Okay, so if I'm sick, what am I likely to do? I'm likely to go to a place where I'm going to get some help in dealing with that sickness. I go to a doctor, I go to a hospital, and I get a prescription so that I can be healed of my sickness. I get the therapy I need so I can overcome my problem, my pain, my disease, right? No problem. Anybody have a problem with that? Absolutely not. In fact, if I didn't, what would you say? Hello? Anybody home? What are you, crazy? God doesn't want you sick in your body. Go get it taken care of. If anointing of the sick has to do with the healing of the sick in the body, what's confession about? Being sick in the soul, sick in the spirit. There is a, an illness, a sickness that touches us, not in our visible lives, but touches us in the dimension of our spirit. And guess what? It shows up in our lives. And that dimension of being sick in the spirit is called what? Sin. When, we're, when, we, when we sin, when we, and, and by the way, sin, I'm going to say this to you 87 times, count them, 87 times in the next four weeks, that Sin is not, first of all, the breaking of a law. It's the breaking of a heart. It's betraying a relationship. It's denying a love. That's what sin is, first of all. If we focus on sin primarily in terms of not following the law and the letter of the law, we're missing out on the personal dimension of sin. 
Christ has turned to us in a personal way, sin's personal. And we're going to discover in the course of the four weeks just how personal sin is. I'll give you a little bit of looking under the cover and say, well, or behind this curtain, what am I talking about? Your sin hurts Jesus. What you do today impacts what Christ suffered 2,000 years ago. We tend to think of sin in reverse, like all the sins I have committed, Jesus died for them all. Fair enough. I'm asking you to look into the future. Look into your today and realize this. What he suffered 2,000 years ago is dependent on how you live today. You didn't hear it. You don't believe it. That's how personal sin is. You choose to sin later today, and this hurts more than it would have. That's how personal Jesus takes your sin. By the way, I didn't make that up. Saints teach it, and it's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We'll discover those passages a little bit later on. Who's happy they're here now, huh? (laughs) Oh, thanks, Tom. Later on the guilt. Now I know why I don't go to confession. I want to face him. In fact, think about that. You think about where does Christ promise to show up? He promises to show up in a place where he's going to grant us new life in baptism. He shows up in a place where he wants to anoint us with his spirit to send us out and be witnesses. Confirmation. He wants to show up in that place where two uh, are called together to be one in that great sacrament of holy matrimony. These are all natural places where he'd promise to show up. There are certain requirements necessary for a person to be in one of those places where he's promised to show up. You can't be baptized. Those who are not baptized can show up and get baptized. Those who are called to be married can show up and get married. What do you have to do to show up in that place that's called confession? Betray him. you got to sin. Can you imagine? One of the seven places he's promised to show up is in that place where you've betrayed him. I'm God. I don't do that. Be happy I'm not God. Or if I do show up there, I'm not going to be happy about it. But he shows up there to say, I want to wash you clean. I want to give you a fresh start. I want to forgive you. He's promised to meet us in a place where he wants to bring healing. Okay, physical effects of our body when we're sick, we know. What are the physical effects of sin on our lives? Think about it. You're not going to have energy for spiritual things. You ever wonder why you drag yourself towards prayer time? Oh, I guess I have to go open myself up to God's loving kindness. Oh, I guess I go have to spend my time in the Word where the one who created the universe is waiting to speak to me. Oh, if I have to go to Mass again and worship with the angels and saints before the almighty, infinitely beautiful God. (sighs) What are we, nuts? Why are we so slow to be drawn towards spiritual things? Why are we so slow to honor God in the way we live our lives? We're sick. We're sick in our spirits and we don't even realize it. We think that's the ordinary condition. We think that's the normal condition that we're supposed to be in. It's not. It's not what God, we have no idea about the freshness of the joy and the peace and the life and recognizing God's presence in the world, in our days, in our hearts, the being alive in the spirit as he leads us each and every day. This is what he wants for us. This is what he intends for us. But we're so sick in the spirit that we miss out. 
Traditionally, the church says that confession is required when you commit a certain kind of sin. What's that called? A mortal sin, right? What's a mortal sin? It's when you do a, something that's seriously wrong, think Ten Commandments, and you do so with full knowledge that it's wrong and the full consent of your will. I will to do what I know is wrong and it is seriously wrong, mortal sin. If I sin in a condition that lacks one of those three, it's not a, a serious wrong, I don't fully know it's wrong or I don't fully consent to doing it, then it's what kind of sin? A venial sin. We sometimes tend to think of the, uh, the idea of avoiding confession, not going to confession, because you know what? I don't com commit a mortal sin. In fact, I say I'm sorry to the Lord with real contrition in my own daily prayer. Why do I need to go to confession if it's not required of me? Well, I, uh, I mentioned a story in this book about a chore in my life growing up that I had to do, mowing the lawn. And it was a chore like confession. In fact, um, growing up, we went to confession every month or two month or two, and it would show up on the chore list. Saturday morning, cut the grass, weed the garden, go to confession. And my brothers and I would ride our bikes up to the church and we'd go to confession. Or my family load in the car and we'd go to confession every month or two. And so it was a regular part of growing up. It was a chore. It was a chore that I was anxious about going in and I was relieved of going out. But it was like cutting the, cutting the lawn, and which was always something I didn't like to do. Well, this carried into my adulthood, unfortunately. And uh, about 10 years ago, I had to mow the lawn. And I mowed the lawn in a yard where Carrie had planted lots of flowers, which needed regular watering. And this particular time, I'm mowing the lawn, absolutely, you know, just like, I'm going to be done with this. And I noticed the hose was still on the grass. I didn't notice it until I was approaching it. Oh, Carrie had left the hose on the grass from watering the flowers. So I thought to myself, do I need to stop mowing and move the hose or will the lawnmower clear the hose? And I thought to myself, the lawnmower will clear the hose. I keep going, I go over the hose, whap! The lawnmower does not clear the hose. But thanks be to God, it was only a venial gash. When I looked at the hose, it was gashed, but it wasn't all the way through. If it was all the way through, it would have been what kind of gash? A mortal gash, right? And you can tell the difference by turning on the water. Turn on the water, what happens? It was only a venial gash. Water leaked all over the place, but it still made it all the way out the end of the hose. And that's like sin in our lives. When we commit venial sins, we're not cutting ourselves off from the life of grace, from, from God's life within us. If we cut ourselves off, the flow of living water, the Holy Spirit, is no longer living in our souls in a vital way. When we commit venial sins, it's like gashing our spiritual lives. It diminishes or weakens the life of God within us. What are the effects traditionally described? They are this. Darken the intellect. Say it with me. Darken the intellect. Darken the intellect. Weaken the will. Weaken the will. Uh, disorder the passions. Disorder the and increase concupiscence. increase concupiscence. First of all, it darkens the intellect. You got to know this. The truths of God don't live in our minds like factual information that's part of this world. Will you ever forget that one and one is two? Really, no, right? You need to have some kind of serious thing happen to you not to remember that one and one is two, right? Will you forget that God loves you? The answer is, it depends. This truth, the truths of God have a quality about them. There's a vitality and a depth to the truths of God 
that depend on your life. If you don't live in accord with God's plan and purpose and will, if you don't live in fidelity to God's grace, the truths of God will diminish in terms of the hold they have on your mind. You may think, God loves me. God is merciful to me. He has a plan for my life. And he's so obviously part of this world. But then you begin to betray God through sin, little gashes. You begin to give in to temptations. You begin to allow sinful patterns to develop in your life. And you know what begins to happen? Your mind gets confused. It gets clouded. And all of a sudden it's like, does God really love me? I don't know why God would want to forgive me after I've done such horrible things. You wonder why people you know who at one point were so strong in their faith and now we're at a point where they're saying to themselves, I don't even know if there is a God. What's happened? The truths that were so alive in them at one point have become diminished, have become diminished because of the life they've been living. Sin darkens the intellect. Sin also weakens the will. What does that mean? When you choose to honor God, you're creating a pattern that you repeat sufficiently and it grows into a habit that we call a virtue. A virtue. A virtue is a habit that is in accord with human excellence and with God's grace also displays the holiness that Christ intends for our lives. Make sense? It's a very traditional idea. And so it happens through our willing to correspond to God's grace. Well, when you choose to will what is not what God has for you, when you choose, that's sin always involves a choice in some degree, when you consent to betray that relationship, it's going to begin to weaken the pattern. It's going to, it's going to destabilize that virtue. And all of a sudden now, there's going to be a bit of a battle. You remember what St. Paul said about his own condition? He said, the things that I would do, I don't do. What I end up doing are the things that I hate. Oh, woe is me. The human condition. Sin is addictive. It begins to draw, draw you towards it. And all of a sudden, you start giving yourself over to a sinful action that leads to a sinful pattern that sinful pattern leads to a sinful habit which when it takes root in us we become powerless the scriptural term is bondage you're in chains you don't have the freedom to get out we ever think again think of people you know you ever find people caught up in a pattern of anger flashes of anger just come out come out come out flashes of uh, greed, self-centeredness, lust. Pick any of the deadly sins. You look at people's lives and you say to yourself, does that, that guy have any idea how he's coming across right now? Do you have any idea? Why is he doing that? He's so given himself over to that pattern that it's now just the way that his life flows. He's in bondage and he needs to be free. Anybody want to get out of this disease? Anybody want to get out of this spiritual sickness? There's a, there's a path out. And so we'll have... Uh, I could do the same thing with disordering the passions. Disordering the passions. The Lord wants us to have our desires all be in accord with, with the call for our lives, meaning that they're all going to lead us back to God. So, for instance, 
So when I think about the seven deadly sins, I can think of a sin that is the typical woman's sin and a sin that's the typical guy's sin. All right? You know what the seven deadly sins are? Pride, anger, envy, gluttony, sloth, lust, and jealousy. Right? They're, or they're called capital sins because they're the sources of other sins. Now of those seven, what's the typical woman's sin? You know what envy is? Envy is when you feel sad over someone else's good. Oh, your daughter made the team. That is so wonderful. Oh, you got a scholarship. That is so great. It's the essentially competitive sin. That's for women. What about for men? If I say, men, what's the typical deadly sin? The men are looking. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. It's lust. It's the typical guy sin, which is what? You look at a woman and you say, this woman's beautiful. Now, that is a way of acknowledging, oh, God, who is the source of all beauty, has created a woman to display that beauty. That woman's beauty can lead me to God. What does lust do? Lust is, I look at that woman, and instead of turning me to God, the desire I have turns me back into my own imagination, and now I'm using this woman in my thinking for my own pleasures. That's what lust is. So does a guy ever have a battle with seeing a beautiful woman and saying, there's the beauty of God and having a battle against that other desire. Yes, until you're 40, and then it disappears. <laughs> right, guys? Right, guys? <laughs> All right, there we go. But the battle, what's the idea of the battle is that there's this pull in two directions. Now, guess what? You give in to the desire, whether it's towards envy or lust or whatever, the battle increases. The battle becomes more difficult. It intensifies. You repent. You ask God for forgiveness. You seek God's mercy and grace. The battle recedes and things become more tranquil. Tell me why again we avoid confession. The church says that when you confess, even just in the case of venial sins, you know, you're required to in mortal sins, but in venial sins, if that's all you have and you confess, you know what you're going to get? Strength to fight temptations. I want that. What about healing of the damage that your sin has caused? I'm in, right? What about it makes your conscience more alert? What's your conscience? Your conscience is that place in the depths of your heart where you hear the voice of God that is prompting you to do something or to avoid something. Do you ever sense that little voice inside of you? Guess what? There's a way to decrease the volume of that voice. You know what it's called? Sin. You start giving into sin and that voice recedes. You repent, you go to confession, and you know what happens? The volume's turned up. You begin to recognize God saying, no, 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 no. Yes, yes, yes. I want that. And you know what? You know what going to confession does? It helps you to gain a deepened capacity to show mercy to others because you've received mercy. And so now you can extend it to others. Those are the benefits, just some of them, that come from a good confession. So this is the kind of healing that Christ intends for our lives in the sacrament. And so, um, and so when, when I think about um, writing this book and the purpose of this book, my goal was this, was to help you recognize that the Lord intends to meet you with healing purposes. He wants to heal your soul in order to set you free. And that's what confession, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, 
is all about.